0: You know, I joke all the time with my team. I'm at the, uh, the point where all day long, I'm just sharing my past mistakes with my team. And that's, you know, the most valuable learning wow. tool, yeah. right? Hey, don't do this. I really screwed that up a few
1: years ago, right?
0: <laughs> and, 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 you know, it's funny, but it's true. Mm-hmm. And let's not do that again. And this is how we can avoid it and how we can maybe turn this really huge challenge into the most amazing opportunity for the next building.
1: Hey, everyone. My name is Ethan DeLeon, and I'm here with our founder and CEO of Small Nation, Jason Duff. Today, we're happy to have the owner and principal architect at Revival Design Collective. We want to welcome you to the Small Nation podcast, where we share some of the valuable lessons with what we have learned about entrepreneurship, real estate, and economic development, and more. The point of this podcast is to create value for you, the listener, and to create a space to learn, talk about what's trending, and inspire others. Hi, Callie. Welcome. (laughs) Hi. Thanks for having me. Callie,
2: we're so excited to have you in the studio today.
0: This is so much fun. Thanks, guys.
2: You're welcome. Well, Ethan, uh, thanks for uh, the introduction today. I am so excited to have Callie Lange from Revival Design Collective here. I have to share the story of how we met. You know, Callie and I uh, met, it's probably been about eight years ago now, we were attending a chamber function uh, in Van Wert Ohio and the Van Wert chamber um, you know like a lot of other communities, brought together their annual meeting where they hand out awards. They, um, you know, highlight projects and things that they're proud of in the community. And it just happened to be that Callie and I were sat next to each other at the table. So we, um, you know, do all the nice things of like, oh, so like, what what do you do? And she's <laughs> like, well, I, I'm an architect and um, I love old historic buildings. And there was a part of me like this light bulb went off where it's like, oh my gosh, there's someone else that loves historic buildings. So I said right back to her, I'm like, I love buildings too. And then we got to laughing and joking about, um, we actually love buildings more than people some days. Okay, we won't tell all of the secrets, but like, no. Like finding someone that appreciates architecture and history and character. And uh, as we were kind of sharing, you know, what we do professionally, the next story was like, where, where are you from? Mm. Where did you grow up? And uh, Callie said, I'm from Middlepoint. Tell us about Middlepoint, Callie.
0: Middle Point, Ohio. I think population. I don't know, maybe 300 at best. So yeah, grew up on a farm right outside of Middle Point. Um, graduated with I think maybe 60 people from a rural high school, right. and <laughs> loved every second of it. Absolutely loved everything about you know my hometown and and my story growing up. And Jason shared that
2: I was from Huntsville. <laughs> Our town had one stoplight. We had a really cool trolley that we referred to as our town restaurant, which is called the town trolley, and it was crazy because as she was describing the way that she grew up and you know her parents and her family and the way that you know she was interacting in the community, it felt very familiar to me, and I think that's where when we started talking about building and growing our businesses, it was like we we love small towns and we love small businesses, and um, Callie has a skill that I. I didn't have. Um, when I first started out buying and renovating buildings, I knew of contractors, um, people that had a lot of skill that, um, you know, would work on residential projects. And I bought my first building. And the first thing that I did is I set out to improve it, renovate it. Uh, the building needed uh, updated electric. Electric was old. It needed uh, new framed walls. It I, I needed new lighting. And so I started going to town and renovating that space. And all of a sudden I came and there was a gigantic stop work order posted on the front door. So bad. Just- and I, well, listen, <laughs> and this is the thing about most people starting out in, in real estate. You, especially in residential, you can hire your cousin that has got the great carpentry business. You can hire, you know, friends and family that do electric and plumbing, but the big thing that I had no idea is that when you move to commercial, there's a whole set of building codes and rules mm-hmm. that govern how you can do it. And when I was you know, learning about Callie and her business, that's something that she and her team specialize in. And I, I think for, for me starting out when I got those red tags, it really frustrated me because I had not planned for project delays. I had not planned for the additional cost and time that would take to actually go through those processes and then i learned about those processes and i'm like reading this code it's foreign to me like i don't understand what this means Mm -hmm. and then when i would take it back to my contractors the price that i had to do some of this stuff it not only doubled and sometimes it actually quadrupled and that's where i think so many businesses and entrepreneurs and people that want to buy and renovate historic buildings are sometimes out of business before they've even started because they don't know about this and um, that's why I so important. Or so appreciate the important work that you do, Callie.
0: Thank you, Jason.
2: Sorry,
1: go ahead.
0: Well, I was, I was going to share that, you know, not only is it important to consider those code implications after you've purchased the building, but we've worked with so many entrepreneurs, so many small business owners who really should have let us tag along during their hunt for the building to begin with.
2: Mm. Well, tell us more about that. Why?
0: Sure. So... Existing buildings all come with their own sets of challenges and opportunities, right? And so depending on what type of business you're looking at opening in a certain building, there are buildings that are just better suited for that type of business, not only in terms of co compliance, but also size, style, so on and so forth. And so as you're doing that kind of hunt for real estate up front, you know, take an architect along, as well as your real estate agent, which is always helpful also, but We can really explain like, hey, I know this one is is a beauty. It's in a perfect location, but you're going to be looking at having to do X, Y, Z to get that prepared to open your restaurant in this space. And that could kill the project. Like you mentioned, Jason, before they even open their doors. So we could be there to suggest, you know, have you considered that building three doors down that that's already fire suppressed or it's under certain square footage, which will allow you to do certain things and still be co-compliant. Um, consider accessibility, right? Um, those types of things that, you know, small business owners are so excited to just get in there and start working. We're there to kind of remind them, guide them, um, mentor them with those types of uh, architectural and engineering decisions up front.
2: Did you know you wanted to be an architect when you are younger?
0: From the time I was in junior high school. All right. So yeah, taking it all the way back to good old Lincoln View, that tiny rural school <laughs> I mentioned earlier, we were required, it was not an option, we were required to take what used to be called VOAG class, and then it kind of transitioned to industrial technology class, like the hip new term, right? But it was basically shop. And in shop class, we had to spend the first half of the nine weeks in the classroom drafting hand drafting 3d shapes and you know so on and so forth and that that first half of the end of the nine weeks ended with we got to design our own house and man oh man was i hooked (laughs) i was so hooked that i begged my teacher please don't make me go out into the shop the second half of the nine weeks i don't want to make a clock i don't you know i don't Mm -hmm. need to build anything out there i said can i just please stay in and keep drawing houses and he said yes wow what an incredible teacher right (laughs) and so he gave me you know when everyone else was out in the shop um the last several weeks he gave me design assignments and then showed me a video I'll never forget this on Frank Lloyd Wright who I Mm. you know I'd never heard of Frank Lloyd Wright Mm -hmm. I didn't even really know what an architect was at that point but he showed me the video and when it was done I was like I don't know what that guy does but I want to do that and that was it Wow. I, I just knew from there that.
1: So what What was uh, next, after, for, next after high school for you?
0: After high school, it was off to Ohio State University, which was a little bit of a change from Columbus, Middle Point, Ohio. Ohio. <laughs> right, right. And I enjoyed every second of it. Um, earned my bachelor degree in architecture at Ohio State. Nice. Took a year off to work and learned some things in between. And then went off to graduate school at Ball State University in Muncie and earned my master's in architecture there.
1: Wow. And then, I mean, obviously you're running your own business now, but what what were your steps to get to that point?
0: So... After grad school, next comes internship. This is all just part of the process of becoming a registered architect. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you got to work for an architectural firm, earn your internship hours, and then you can start sitting for your exams. So, literally, I, I had a graduation ceremony on Sunday. I started my first quote-unquote real job that Monday at a firm in Minster that designed primarily schools, K-12 mm-hmm. through 12 schools, and really cut my teeth there Learning everything about commercial design, code compliance, um, the interaction between architects and consulting engineers, which was something that they don't teach you in school.
2: Imagine so, that. <laughs> yeah, right,
0: right. So that you know, real world experience was enormous. And yeah. you know, in the the entire time um, with that firm, I just knew in the back of my mind that owning my own firm was a goal. It just always had been. At that time, I thought. You know, high-end residential design was something I was really passionate about, as well as fixing up old buildings. And I think it just all took me back to playing around in really old barns as a kid, and my parents kind of let me redo my own bedroom as part of 4-H projects and yeah, things like that. Good. You know, they they really planted the seed, mm-hmm. so that was always kind of there. And so after a couple of years at that firm in Minster, I decided, you know what, I'm just going to go for it. And yeah. Here we are.
1: Where does, how is uh, like building a new building and revitalizing like an old building? How are those two paths different in your field? I mean, obviously I feel like you can go either way. Um, And why did you choose the route you did?
0: So there's just something about for me, not that I don't love new construction, ground up construction. I think there's a a time and a place and appropriate projects for that, Mm -hmm. you know, um, for many clients. But for me, old buildings just come with inherent soul. And you, it's really, really difficult. And I honestly, I've yet to achieve it. And I feel like our firm is, you know, we, we have a load of super talented designers, but when we wrap up a downtown building renovation, it just feels better to Mm. me than when we wrap up a, a ground up new construction project somewhere. And I think, you know, I know in my bones that that missing piece is soul and the story and the generational connection between us now and the people who have used those buildings for decades.
2: And you know, in the work that we do at Small Nation is helping towns be able to revitalize. And we go into towns that oftentimes have buildings that are boarded up, that are vacant, and that are empty. And that, has, that weighs on a town and a community. And what's so helpful for people that have the gifts like Callie does is like going in and studying what the building was historically. What history, why was it a dry goods store? Why was it a restaurant or a hotel and, or a department store? And, and we may never see a department store come back to that particular town or community, but it doesn't mean we can't design something that still is retail focused and maybe even has a food component in it. And I think that's something that when you walk through your towns looking for opportunities, it's oftentimes the buildings that look the worst that could be the best.
1: Where can people go to find maybe like the history of a building um, to learn more about it as they, if they're interested in, in buying the building, if they just want to know more, or just interested about your community.
0: Sure. Well, I'll share where we start yeah. at Revival. So right out of the gate, we head and look for the Sanborn
2: map. Tell us about that because that is a secret. That's a, a strategy that I don't think many people listening know how to do that.
0: So there are these fire insurance maps that date okay. yeah, date clear back to the 1800s, and they're available at any local library. They're actually all on, in an online database now, at least within the state of Ohio they are. So they're accessible to the general public. Where you can look at these uh, historic insurance Sanborn maps, and they, they are, I'm trying to remember the increments of years, but let's just call it by decade. So if you want to look back at your map and your downtown from 1880, It will show the plat of downtown, and it will say what the use of every space was. So it'll say uh, harness shop, dry goods store. Barber, okay. yeah, saloon, cigar
2: manufacturing. Yeah. Like you see, some of these things, yeah. they're like, there's no way that took place, and you're like, yes, yes, it and it did. did for decades.
0: It did, and there is just a wealth of information. These maps are filled with symbols used by the insurance industry, so it tells you how many stories there were, where the historic firewalls were, um, whether it had a, a historic sprinkler system. Believe it or not, a lot of these older buildings had really old school fire suppression systems incredible right
2: cisterns sometimes that would collect the rainwater on the building and there was this gigantic cistern or water storage pit in the back parking lot wow like and and this is like good good and bad things because sometimes we found some of these cisterns that we didn't know even existed and of course you have to fill them in but like that those maps are immensely helpful
0: they are they're incredible and so that's kind of step one for us Mm -hmm. from there we hit the books again at the library and we look through anything that the local community has. And typically it's the American Legion group or one of those like smaller community oriented pieces that will pull together kind of historical videos or books or photographs. Um, If there's a historical society in the County, we hit that reference. Um, But also believe it or not, if we blast out on Facebook or somewhere on social media and we say, Hey, Hey, does anyone remember what used to be in the old grossest furniture building? We will get 500 minimum (laughs) messages. And those are the best comments to read because you get the I remember when my grandma bought her school shoes there and so on and so forth. And that is just so incredibly special and valuable. And honestly, I don't think the general public realizes how many times we take those special stories and we pull that into the design of the new space
1: I know I've seen some of those designs choices here, even in Belle Fountain and just, you know, paying respects to what it used to be is really cool and making, you can make it new in a new way, but the building comes alive that way.
2: And just to share, we're working on the historic opera block project here in downtown Belle Fountain. And and we've used those maps working with revival and Callie and her team. Um, We needed to figure out, what that history was and as we were diving deeper you know, the unfortunately the opera house which was in the back of this very beautiful ornate decorative facade where the businesses line, the opera house was in the back it was taken down in the 60s and that's always a sad state when a town loses a beautiful structure like that but what we did find is the kind of performances that took place there um harry houdini mm-hmm. actually did a, a magic act in the space i mean those are things that once we found out and saw programs and photos and pictures, and I think another great resource is historic postcards that may exist in your town. Absolutely. Is to see, you know, what was in those spaces. And I, I love when I see J.C. Penney's and Sears and Montgomery Ward, like all these stores like that eventually transitioned out to the malls. But now today, seeing that resurgence of specialty retail and restaurants and coming together, coming back downtown is super cool.
1: That's awesome. So what was your guys' first project that you guys did together?
2: So um, when we met after that event, uh, Brittany Saxton, who's been a previous guest Mm -hmm. on our podcast, she uh, had a vision um, for growing her business, and directly next to 600 Downtown, which is this beautiful brick oven pizzeria, was a vacant storefront that was long and narrow, and you know, we shared kind of Brittany and uh, her story, but we found an opportunity what pairs really well with pizza, ice cream. So Wits frozen custard that makes this amazing fresh frozen custard daily um, located in the, the front part of the storefront, which was about 1,000 of the 4,000 square feet that was available. So we had this underutilized space that was not making money Um, was very difficult to program and figure out what could go in there. And so Brittany really brought that issue to us, and I I put that challenge out to Callie, and I said, Brittany wants to have a place for parties and retirement get togethers, just a a, a space and a party room because her dining room is not set up to accommodate groups. But she has one request. She wants to sell a lot of wine. So I think in hearing that... um, you know, I also had to share, we, you know, Callie had lots of big visions and ideas and she's like telling, sharing that letter, tell the story, but I'm like, so that sounds really expensive, Callie. Like that's not in our budget, but tell us about what you created.
0: So this was a big sell, especially being my very first project with Jason. I was a little nervous to present, yeah. but I, my mind after meeting with Jason and hearing what Brittany wanted, what kind of experience she wanted, she wanted something intimate, for groups, she wanted to sell a lot of wine. In my mind, it was like totally obvious, we've got to create a wine cave here. I mean, come on. But,
2: and first off, this is a downtown building. It's right. like, okay, just in hearing that, how are you going to create that, you know, Italy, Napa Valley, you know, cave experience in, in a small
1: town, downtown
2: Ohio? Yeah, <laughs> right, and it's like a three story brick building.
0: Right. In a space that is not even 20 feet wide, is 100 feet deep, and oh, by the way, has like soaring 14 or 16 foot ceilings. Like, not the architecture of a wine cave, right? <laughs> so I'm like, Jason. Hear me out, man. What if, what if we build this beautiful brick arch ceiling and pop in a mezzanine up above it so you still have usable space up above on a mezzanine and we can hide the mechanicals and the yada yadas up there, but it creates this incredible, intimate Mm -hmm. cave, wine cave vibe, right? This cellar vibe. That will be completely unexpected when you walk in off of the street, you know, off of Main Street. And he's like, huh.
2: <laughs> I'm always open to ideas. But, you know, that's the thing <laughs> we have to do, too. You can vision up these amazing ideas, um, but can we afford it? Yeah. And, you know, here's the thing I'm most proud of about it. Bellavino events and wine room. When you walk inside, there is this gorgeous barrel ceiling. Um, there is this amazing stone that's on the wall, and brick is lining that barrel ceiling, but let's tell them some of our secrets. The brick ceiling, that if most, I would say 99% of people walking in don't know, but what is it? It's wallpaper. <gasps> no. Oh my I know. yes. But that's the thing, the visual element, I still think 99% of people, you could not tell the difference yeah. of that. And then the stone, which is this beautiful, there are browns and reds and topes. Um, it, it really is. It looks so real, but what is it?
0: It's just a thin stone veneer.
2: Peel <laughs> and stick. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, you can go to Lowe's and Home Depot, and we could peel and stick it on there. But does anyone know? No, and, no and it way. looks
0: so high end, and it feels so Tuscan.
2: And I, and I think that's the thing that people, when they walk in here and I share some of the secrets behind why the design team used creative affordable solutions to do it, that's the value of hiring the right designer and the right architect. Yeah. And, and I'm going to share, y- y- you you have a business, you have to charge fees and to make money. And I think for some developers that are just starting out, it's like they look at that fee and it's like, well, oh my gosh, how, how would I f- afford that? Well, let me have you ask the question, what if you don't spend the money to plan, design, and think about the end result? What's that going to cost you in lost sales? That's what, yeah,
1: I was going to, do you get that pushback a lot? I mean, I mean, I think when people think about bringing in an architect to do that kind of work, that's an immediate like, concern, right? So what, what would you say to that?
0: I would say 90 to 95% of the new clients, new entrepreneurs who we meet with for a discovery call or walk through, are really taken aback when we say, okay, here's kind of a a standard ballpark fee for the type of project you're looking at. And the reaction every time is, well, we didn't account for anything like this in our construction budget. Mm -hmm. And fair enough, you know, they're, they're new to the process. It's definitely not a criticism of these small business owners, but it's something that we're trying to teach and coach and talk about all the time that this is something that honestly, like you're going to have to get building permits. You're going to have to, and in order to get building permits, you're going to have to have someone stamp them. We will stamp them, but we will (laughs) also bring a million other positive things to the table. Yeah for your project. And so, yeah. you know, that we bring all of that value up front, but it is it is scary for a lot of our clients who, you know, it's their first go
1: at it. Yeah, you have to if you want those kind of results, you have to expect to put in the investment. So, yeah, thanks for sharing. Sure. Um what are some of those things as we're talking about building codes and things like that? What I don't know if you, if you have either a horror story or if just some, some valuable learning lessons or where to even start. Because I know if I were to just jump into this right now, I wouldn't even know where to start.
2: So yes, I have lots of stories. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think um, one of the first things that we want to strive to do is to understand how we make a building safe. Yeah. And the purpose and the reason behind there are building codes and life safety codes um, is there have been you know, loss of life and major disasters that we want to make sure do not happen again. And so uh, when I look at a building or a structure involving an architect, I want to think about what its highest and best use is. How can we uh, take capital to purchase a building? How can we work with an investor or a bank to get a loan or use that working capital to renovate it and then find a tenant or business that we're going to start or recruit um, that wants to, 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 to lease that space? That is a lot of steps. And I, and I yeah. think that what um, what where the code stuff comes in is depending on how you're going to use that space, uh, that dictates if it will need a sprinkler system, an elevator, um, what types of, of fire rated improvements you'll have to make. And, and I think there's a lot of misinformation out there, a lot of people think that you're required to put a sprinkler system in or an elevator in. And I'm here to say, and that's probably something I clear up at a lot of the speaking consulting events that we do, In we, we have yet to put an elevator in any of the 56 historic buildings that we have renovated in downtown Bale Mountain because... Based on the code, we found other ways to make our properties accessible where we can and where we can't because it's economically or just not possible because of the age or the type of structure that it is. Um, we found ways the code will allow us to navigate to not have to do that.
1: Yeah, let's talk about that for a second. What are some of those? We don't have to go into the, the weeds all the way, but just like what maybe give a few examples of what ways around those codes that, you know, it's just, it's just not feasible for some of these historic buildings.
2: One of my first um, goals when we started revitalizing downtown Bell Fountain was how do we get more upper floor residential? Mm-hmm. And I think I had not seen a lot of other small town developers do do that um, in typically those three story historic downtown buildings because I had heard you have to have an elevator. It, it, it's going to be economically uh, economically not possible for you know by the time you put the sprinkler system and do those things you just can't afford the hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars that be necessary to do that. And I think that's when I got introduced to design professionals and architects and engineers that said, wait, you don't have to do that. There is a section of the building code uh, that is called Chapter 34 that is designed within the state of Ohio. It's called the Historic Building Code. Callie, tell us more about that.
0: So the Historic Building Code... Boils down all of the life safety and accessibility requirements that are in, you know, we'll call it the front part of the code for new builds, and it distills it down and creates ways to make historic buildings safe, right? Yeah. So it's a it's a a more, you know, a common sense version, right? There are just some things within the building code for new builds that are technically infeasible Mm -hmm. for historic buildings. And Chapter 34 recognizes that and allows for adjustments to certain portions of the code to accommodate as safe as we can get it and as accessible as we can possibly get it within the constraints of what we're working with.
1: Yeah. What are some of those things, because you're facing some of that with the Opera Block right now, right?
0: We are. So uh, one example would be, Let's start with accessibility, right? A lot of these storefronts are situated six to eight inches above public sidewalk height, right? Which, you know, does not meet standard ADA requirements. <laughs> and so we need to take a look at creative ways of making that public storefront, public entrance as accessible as we possibly can. And does that mean recessing the entry and sloping the approach up to it, which you see in a lot of downtown uh, storefronts, or... Do we create some accessible parking on the backside of the building and a nice accessible entrance on the rear, at the rear of those storefronts, which is also something that we've had to do in the past um, The opera block being one of those opportunities, and so that's you know one example of if it was being built brand new, the slope of that concrete approach has to be you know meet a certain maximum slope. Well, if it's a historical building and we only have six feet to work with, and we got to get people ramped up to it, what are you gonna do? The code allows (laughs) yeah you know for exceptions, which is awesome, and we really have to rely on that heavily. Otherwise, these downtown buildings would just sit.
2: And you know, once we have that. Uh, work that's been done, you know, Callie and the architect and the team prepared drawings. Those drawings include multiple things. There's an electrical print. There is a print that highlights any demolition. There's a print that highlights any structural changes that are made to it. There's a plumbing uh, permit or or plumbing um, sheet, an HVAC sheet, and then kind of an overall site sheet. So those are the kind of things that get wrapped up, prepared, and organized in your drawings. Once you have those done you will submit that to your local commercial building authority. Sometimes that goes directly to Columbus at the state of Ohio. Um, Oftentimes your community, whether it's your city, your county, or your region, may have a regional building authority and plan review that you'll submit those drawings. Tell us a bit about plan review, what that process looked like, and and then how you can actually then start your project once that plan review has been done.
0: Sure. So we pulled together what we call a set of construction documents that Jason just mentioned that has the site plan, the architectural drawings, structural, so on and so forth. Once that's all packaged, we send that off to the authority having jurisdiction. That's the technical term, right? (laughs) Which is either the local building authority or within Ohio, it goes to the state of Ohio, goes to Reynoldsburg for plan review. And those plans examiners, as they're entitled, um, those plans examiners review the drawings and they check for code compliance. And so they're ensuring that, you know, we are not exceeding the maximum number of occupants that are permitted to be in a space, that we're meeting any fire separation requirements, uh, sprinkler requirements, accessibility, so on and so forth. They're looking at this holistically to make sure that this building is going to be safe and uh, usable for the general public. If they see any issues in the drawings, like, hey, I need clarification on this to make sure that you're meeting code section, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. They will kick back a letter to us, the architect of record or engineer of record, and they'll say, hey, we need clarification or we need you to revise XYZ, just in kind of a list format. Sometimes we, we hit the nail on the head right away and there are no questions and cool, we have permits and we can move on. Sometimes we need to address those correction letter items. Once we have either partial plan approval or full plan approval from the authority having jurisdiction, then the client is ready to cut loose and hammers can swing and uh, contractors can get to work. Um, then it's time for building inspections. So that's kind of the, the handoff in the sequence of events. The state of Ohio or your local building authority is still going to be involved all throughout construction in the form of building inspections to ensure what's being built matches what's on the drawings.
2: And how that process works is that your contractors will go ahead and and oftentimes get the framing done. So that's actually building any new walls or any new changes. And they'll keep those walls open because your electric or your plumbing will be inside of those. And so you'll call in to the inspectors to actually schedule time for them to come out. And they'll sign off on the sign-off sheet that's coordinated with your drawings on when those certain approvals are done. Once the approvals are done, then you can start closing up walls. So I think Part of what adds money and complexity to commercial projects is the time that it's taking your contractors and your subcontractors to go through those processes. Because I think sometimes in residential, you can kind of do it all together and you're not going and having kind of each individual phase or trade inspected on site. So if you have a local building authority that's fast, that's efficient, that uses technology, thank we are always so thankful to find
0: oh it's a game changer
2: because if you don't everyone is hurry up and wait and the problem is with the wait, the meter continues to run mm-hmm. and you know today's labor rates you know could be 60 70 80 100 plus dollars an hour so you can see you don't want people standing around waiting for inspections
0: Right, and that also creates a a ripple effect if you have a tenant who is chomping at the bit to get in and open their retail store by holidays, right? That's always a big one. You know, a boutique wants to be open by November 1st, right, at the very latest so they can hit that kind of fall and Christmas sales that's going to carry them through January, February, March. If, If your construction timeline way back in March, you know, When people are thinking like, oh, we're not in a huge hurry, when that starts to get pushed back by four weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, all of a sudden that becomes really scary for that new tenant. And if they can't open until January, that may kill their business before they even get their doors open.
2: And and I, I do think that's something that we as a real estate developer and the work that we do at Small Nation is trying to educate people on everything that goes into preparing, renovating, and completing the construction of a space. And I think that's something that we're we're in a lot of markets and towns. The landlord just says, "Sign the lease, give me the security deposit, put the utilities in your name. Good luck." Yeah. They put all of the requirements, all of the renovations, all of that, figuring it out on the tenant, you know, tenant's back. And most people, that's where they get stuck, is they have not been through that process. And so they, they, they get stuck, they run out of money, and then it's kind of this vicious cycle where you don't see the positive results. Um, and, and that's something that we've worked to solve.
1: So as a, a landlord perspective, then what are some of the, the actions that you do to kind of mitigate some of that from happening?
2: I think the big thing is, is just being fully transparent when a tenant comes in They have all of these dreams and ambitions and ideas. I want to add uh, two sinks there. Um, I bought this great sink um, at this farm market that's from 1900. Um, I mean, they look at the kind of light fixtures. I, I just rewired this light fixture. I think it will work there. Man, I'm the same kind. of. I love to reuse things and repurpose things, but then we learn that there are codes That dictate that sinks have to have certain type of hardware Mm -hmm. you know that's handicap accessible also you know the the way the plumbing has to fit underneath it there's certain types of things that just won't work and so we try to understand their vision work with you know the, the architect and the designers to listen to the client but then also educate them to say we know you want to do this but here's what the code says, and here's how we can find a compromise that will still get you that look and that feel, but it's going to be slightly different. And and, and I think that um, hand-holding, that communication um, is really, really important. Anything you want to add to that? Yeah.
0: I'll just echo that a massive amount of communication and collaboration is seriously the key to doing these tenant fit-outs. A lot of back and forth, you know, we, we joke all the time with Jason, like whether or not our team wants to be best friends with your team, we're going to have to be because <laughs> we are ta- We are communicating 10 times a day, yeah. some days.
2: And sometimes it's 20 or 30 emails back and forth. And honestly, there's it's okay. There sometimes is some creative, um, dissonance, <laughs> <laughs> we will talk about ceiling fans later, Callie, right.
0: <laughs> you know, form over function or what, you know, yeah, whatever, exactly. but you know, we, we all respect everyone's point of view. And yeah. honestly, that's the secret sauce because, yeah. you know, everyone at the table is coming in with their own perspective, their own set of like superpowers is how we like to describe it. And that's what gets the job done in the end is everyone is bringing you know, their knowledge set to the table. We're working together. We're figuring it out. And what Jason and his team have been able to do that is just so impressive from a development perspective is the speed at which they work is I've, I've not seen this with any other client or any other developer. And really, I think the, the kind of key behind it all is communication.
1: What are some of the projects we have going on right now currently that... I mean, both Small Nation and
2: Well, just to, to highlight, you know, since Bellavino and Benson Wine Room, I think that we may be up to at least 15 or 20 projects, maybe more.
0: Oh, yeah. I, I think we're up into the early 30s. Yeah. The early <laughs> so, 30s. Yeah.
2: I, I mean, and in, in some of them are, are larger. Um, some of them are smaller. But, like, it's uh, incremental development is really the, the term um, is that – if you go in Google maps and go back and look at bell fountain 15 years ago to today, it is mind blowing how much has changed. But year after year, you kind of forget the incremental changes, but it could be yeah. designing new signs for a, a building or a facade. It could be recolorizing um, a particular structure or adding new windows or a tenant fit out. But um, you know, I'm really proud. We've done some great work together. I think build coworking space uh, along with the flying pepper cantina. I know Cali, Um, That project was recognized with an American Institute of Architect Award. Is that right? It
0: is. We received an award for Flying Pepper Cantina and also for the syndicate.
2: And for the syndicate. So that's another one. You know, the Build Coworking Spaces, our shared office and and co-work facility, the Flying Pepper Cantina was Um, a business that started as this amazing food truck and then moved to a brick and mortar. And then the syndicate was new construction that was done next to Brew Fountain and Bell Fountain, which has been the number one craft beer bar for the last four years running. Because that team was doing some amazing things from a culinary perspective, they did about a 5,000 square foot new build with a catering kitchen, beautiful uh, bar, um, that looks just like a newsstand right out of New York City. And then in back, it's an entertainment venue for yeah. live music. So you, it, the diversity of the projects, as you hear, is, is significant. And I think what we've been studying um, and working together, both from a real estate developer and also a design aesthetic, is what the, what is the town missing? Yeah. And this opera block um, has been a, pro- a property that I think you and I, we've always walked by it and said, man... <laughs>
0: Goals. It, goals. <laughs> and it, it was a
2: big one because it's 40,000 square feet. It's yeah. three story. And I'll be honest with you, it, it intimidated me. Um, it was, it's just so massive. It's a lot. Yeah. It's just so massive. And I think, you know, seeing how fast and how bad it was deteriorating was a huge enterprise risk for our downtown and our community. So like, even though it's been a heavy lift, um, I think partnering up with Callie and her team um, just seeing starting from one storefront and wrapping around like to today, um, it, it's magical. What's it is. happening?
0: There. It's it's so magical that I had to claim a space for us, and we actually opened up a second storefront in downtown Bell Fountain. Within the Opera Block, so I think were we were we the OG, were we the original? You, you're the
2: OG. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <And laughs> that flag. It's
0: been amazing because yeah. you know we we are continuing to fit out alongside Small Nation these commercial storefronts on the first floor, and we're you know looking at partnering with them on yeah. doing some offices on the second floor, and we are literally right there. You want to talk mm-hmm. about boots on the ground, like. It is walk outside of our yeah. door and walk next door and check out that space, which has been amazing. How do you care
1: about the building? Well, you
2: have an office there, <laughs> <laughs> right? I don't
0: think we could care anymore. Yeah. And we love you know, can
2: it. I tell you as we dug into this, the bones of this building, as much as it's scary and as big as it was, the bones are phenomenal. Like maybe may, maybe some of the best. I mean, I know you travel around to a lot of historic downtowns. This is, I would say with some of the architecture details and elements, one of the best that I've seen in the state.
0: So many details. And and not only, you know, what I would consider kind of the big expensive moves of the late 1800s, early 1900s, but what really like tugs at my heartstrings with the opera block is the little details. Mm -hmm. Someone loved this building. Someone Mm -hmm. thought carefully about this building, Mm -hmm. right? And thankfully... It has not really been remuddled, as we like to call it, over the years. It's been kind of left alone, which is huge. That is enormous. Maybe it wasn't in the great shape, but at least it's still there. Mm -hmm. So we can take care of it. We can fix it, and we can bring it back to life. And so, yeah, I mean, this is going to be just epic, Jason, when it's finished
2: thank you and i i'm super excited too and i think that's one of the 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 things that i am am just processing and excited for what's next is that you know we've been hosting lots of groups from around the state and even some people from around the country coming to see and understand more about the revitalization that's happening here and i think today's podcast like you helping connect the dots of why Uh, Working with engineers and architects are important, getting those construction plans together. But, you know, when they come here, they're kind of in awe about, like, how do you get 56 buildings? And I I appreciate the compliment about speed. And just to comment on that, it is about the team that you put together and um, your ability to solve problems and make decisions quickly. Uh, But I, I think now it's taking what we've learned here and helping all these other towns around the state and around the country and I know you're doing that.
0: We're doing our best. Yeah. Yeah,
2: but you know, tell us about how, you know, how how you're taking what you're learning and how you're helping other towns and communities around the state.
0: Well, it's, you know, I think it's the same with with anything, right? The more you do it, the more you learn and, you know, I joke all the time with my team, I'm at the uh, the point where all day long, I'm just sharing my past mistakes with my team. And that's, you know, the most valuable learning tool, right? Hey, don't do this. I really screwed that up a few years ago, right? (laughs) And, 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 you know, it's funny, but it's true. Mm -hmm. And let's not do that again. And this is how we can avoid it and how we can maybe turn this really huge challenge into the most amazing opportunity for the next building. And so, you know, we have kind of created this formula within the studio where, okay, guys, this is our process. When we are hired on to help renovate this downtown building, let's call it a standard like single storefront, two story, right? 20 feet wide, two story, usually about 2000 square feet per floor all right, here's our process for going in and doing field documentation, okay? And that's our let's get to know the building day. Yeah. And this is our process for measuring and photographing. And we've just really nailed down a system. And not only has that made it easier for us within the design process, but we've really been able to streamline and kind of pare down our fee um, on that front end, which, you know, any, any kind of economies we can pass along to some clients, awesome, right? Yeah. So you know, really taking that process and, and coaching our team on, okay, if you run into this, because by and large, these old buildings within the state of Ohio that were you know built around the same time are it's a lot of repetitive construction, um, a lot of repetitive details. And we've learned over the years how to how to kind of manage all of those challenges. And so being able to share that knowledge, Um, from small town to small town, developer, developer, has been really fun for us. And then just seeing the amazing community response, I mean, does it get any better than that at work? I don't think it does. I
2: love that. And you just took the the big move and risk of (laughs) buying your own historic building.
0: We did. So we outgrew our cute little space in downtown Salina. And we, we looked long and hard in Saline and we there just wasn't a building available that fit our needs. And so we went one little town away to Coldwater, Ohio. And we pulled the trigger on a, a massive 16,000 square foot tank of a building right in the heart of downtown Coldwater. It's gorgeous. Art Deco facade built in the late 1930s. Concrete floor between the first and second floor. I mean, oh, this wow. thing is a tank. Um, there are... Before we bought the building, there were only two owners previously, wow. which is really unusual. Yeah, Yeah. Both furniture stores mm. with in-house interior design. So it was like, could this be more perfect <laughs> for revival? So, you know, I'm on a high. We bought a building. This is so much fun. We have a fire.
2: Oh, no. like I get a text. <laughs> well, no, no. I'm looking on social media and I'm like. Oh my gosh. Cause it, it is, I will tell you one of those things that I keep me up at night is when storms come in. I used to love, like I was a weather geek. I was like one of the gigantic tornado warnings and all that stuff. Now a thunderstorm like blows through. <laughs> I'm panicking cause I have all these roofs and buildings. And I'm worried about like what could happen with them. Well, when I saw that there was a fire and it looked to be large and cold water, like my heart sank and I'm like, please don't be Callie's building. Please don't be anyone's building. But it it was and you sent some pictures and like you just finished the hardwood refinished the hardwood floors and sanded them on the first floor and
0: we had and and we had you know moved all of our fun you know product and desks and all you know we were storing it in this back warehouse area and that's where the fire occurred so we essentially lost all the things we had just moved over from our slide I mean it was crushing crushing blow so, you know, we're recovering from that. We're picking up the pieces and working with insurance and, you know, planning next steps. Kid you not, less than a month later, this we are hit with this huge, weird windstorm at like midnight. I don't know if you guys remember when, I think Bell Fountain was hit by it as well. Didn't think much of it when, when I was laying at home. You know, our house shook and I was worried about our house. Didn't really think about the downtown building. Get a photo next morning from our contractor, our masonry restoration contractor, of this like horrid hole in someone's roof, and it still hadn't clicked yet. And I'm like, "What is what is this?" And he's like, "That's your roof. It oh, no. that wind literally peeled our roof back like a tin can. I'd never seen ne- anything like
2: I, and it. I, and listen, I've seen a lot of roofs in a lot of buildings when when we looked at it, like it it it, it literally just that's the description. It peeled it all back." and you could see the exposed insulation and oh e- you could see everything.
0: inside the second floor of our building. I mean, come on, yeah. right? Come <laughs> strike on, 2. Strike 2. So, you know, we went through the process again. <laughs> call insurance, I'm like, "Well, like, the look- agent knows where to find us, right?" Um, you know, and and again kind of reset and we're finally finally, you know, making some headway and we're getting there. But it's been An interesting ride, being on the other side of it, right? Yeah. Um. Not only, obviously, we're doing our own architectural design on this one, but we're also, you know, the develop somewhat the developer as well. And so it's been, I just have a lot more respect and patience with Jason now.
2: (laughs) See, I I knew there'd be (laughs) a big benefit out of this.
0: seriously I'm like, now. now that it's like my pocketbook mm-hmm. and my timeline and my yep. contractors that are being affected I'm like man I really need to show some of our clients more grace because so
1: you mean it's not easy to go buy a bunch of bu- bunch of old buildings in downtown I, I and mean just
0: as it turns get it out it's a rocky road but <laughs> it is fun it's I got totally to admit, worth it. it it is
2: and I think that's the thing it brings us so much purpose and passion to see the transformation because it's kind of, you know, just like Callie was saying when she was back in sixth grade and like visioning stuff on paper. And then probably the greatest joy is that, that we look at, like we walk out to the opera block right now. We did these, these renderings of recolorizing the facade, Mm -hmm. looking at it in person and then thinking back to that rendering, it makes it totally worth it. That's the why.
0: Well, and I think about how much I'm in love with, you know, some of these really rough shaped downtown buildings now, and we're restoring them, and we're going to be long gone, and a hundred years from now, someone else is going to be standing out there looking at that, and it's still going to be there because we're all taking care of these buildings now, and that just, I don't know, that, that makes it so worth it. It gets me out of bed every day. It I just love, love, love old buildings.
1: Thank you so much for sharing that, Callie. I, I your your passion for the buildings is contagious and um I mean it's kind of cool. I mean, as a as a content creator, portfolios are everything. And to think that your portfolio is literally just these downtowns, like that's so uh visual and so satisfying and, and something that whole communities can get behind and you're like changing parts of the entire state, which is really cool. So I was super pumped to have you on as a guest today. Um, And thanks for sharing some of, you know, the struggle (laughs) to your current buildings. Cause that's the other thing. It's not, it's not all sunshine and daisies. It is
0: not. This is real talk.
1: Yeah.
2: But well, and here's the golden nugget that I take away from today is Callie said that she learns from her mistakes and she takes those mistakes uh, and makes that her strength. And uh, one of my mentors always said that mistakes are just accelerated learning. You can read in a textbook. You can, you know, try to conceptually understand what someone went through. But when you go through it yourself and can be able to articulate that lesson to someone else, that is learning. And I I think that is your superpower. I I try to also learn from you and others and make that our superpower is that if we could do the Spock mind meld and give... (laughs) All of that lessons, knowledge, grit, courage, we would do that. And the, the next best thing is just to share from our uh, mistakes and our life lessons.
0: Absolutely. You know, there aren't enough hours in the day or days in the year for Jason and I to help help rehab every single downtown building everywhere. We'd like to try. We would we we'd love we to. But then
2: we would be single and lonely and we'd only have buildings. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah.
0: But man, if we can share this knowledge with other people and allow them to do this alongside us, I mean, think about what a difference we can make in our small communities.
1: So. Yeah. Where can people follow you or Revival and keep up with what's happening with you guys?
0: All right. So you can find us online at RevivalDesign.co. We're on Instagram, same handle. We're on Facebook, Pinterest, house.com just about everywhere. Great. So yeah, awesome. we would love you guys to follow along in our journey.
1: Yeah. Also, uh, with specifically the Opera Block Project... Um, i'm trying it 's taking a lot of time and I expect it'll take a lot lot longer but um to kind of just document the journey on video and um kind of just capture uh small nation's perspective revival's perspective and um as as it 's being developed and turned into uh what it's going to be I think it's going to be a very awesome transformation so uh be looking for some of those videos and and kind of documentary style uh videos to drop and you can kind of and that website the the is scenes.
2: opera block.
1: There you go. All right. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in and checking out the Small Nation podcast. You can find us anywhere that you listen to your podcast, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and even the Small Nation YouTube channel. I hope you're able to pull some value from that conversation, and we hope to see you in the next one. If you enjoyed it, be sure to leave a like, comment, or a five-star review to help more people to discover this podcast. Stay tuned to Small Nation on social media to keep up with all the cool projects that are happening here. And Until next time, this is Ethan with the Small Nation podcast, signing off. Thanks, everyone.